Well, good morning, everybody. Oh, Lydia, what's... <laughs> I need Lydia up to warm you up again. Good morning, everybody. Ah, oh, that's better. Thank you so much. Um, well, if we've not met before, my name is Richard. I'm the Richard that, that Philippa mentioned, who is alongside Judith, who's being released from long sight so that Dave and Amy can take long sight. You with it? Yeah? You... <laughs> Um, Judith and I um, have the privilege of just working um, with all our teams of leaders across um, the King's Church community, and it's a great joy um, to be with you this morning as we continue our series of going through um, the books of the Bible. We had our break, didn't we, over the summer, um, and we're now into the New Testament, and last week um, you looked together at the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, um, and Luke. All four Gospels, of course, um, give accounts of the life and the teaching um, of Jesus. And they're our main source of information for what um, Jesus said and did. And um, between a quarter and a third of each of the Gospels, I don't know if you you know this, but between a quarter and one third of every one of the Gospels is actually all about the events surrounding the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So massively, massively important. And for those of us that have been Christians for any length of time at all, we kind of get that, don't we? The death and the resurrection of Jesus is a major thing um, for us. But of course, that means that that two-thirds to three-quarters is actually about the life of Jesus as well. And we mustn't miss that, just how important it is what we can learn from the life and the teaching um, of Jesus. Uh, These gospel accounts, they're not biographies and they're they're not like video diaries, It's not like Jesus turned on um, the camcorder um, each morning and said, well, I'm just getting up now, Um, I've just brushed my teeth, Um, feeling a bit depressed actually because I was teaching the disciples again yesterday and they still didn't get it. Um, it, It's not like a video diary that tells us what happened through every moment of every day. So the fact that something isn't in the Gospels doesn't mean it never happened It's just that the gospel writers didn't see that as something significant enough to record for us so that they could achieve their objective. And their objective was that we might know and understand who Jesus is so that we could believe in him and be changed by believing in him. And these gospel writers, they draw on different kind of sources of evidence, So let's imagine for a moment that something happened in Manchester, some world-transforming event took place in Manchester, and um, Lydia, she saw what happened. She observed, she saw what happened in this event, but Zeta also saw it. Now, Lydia saw it from one perspective, and and Zeta saw it from another. But then, along came Deanne, and she wanted to write an account of what had happened in this world-transforming event. So she went and she talked to Lydia, she got all the information, and she wrote it down. Brilliant account, well done, Deanne, um, of everything that happened in this world-transforming event. And you'd say, yeah, great job, good job, you've done it well. But the thing is... After that, along came Emeka, and he decided he was also going to write an account of what happened. But he talked to Lydia, and he also talked to Zeta. So Emeka's account has got some of the same information as Deanne's account, because they both talked to Lydia. But only Emeka talked to Zeta. 
So actually, Emeka's account looks slightly different to Dian's account because he's got both sources of information, and Dian's only got one of them. So you would expect, therefore, that some of what they wrote would be very similar, and some of what they wrote would be different. And that's how it works with the Gospels. Sometimes people get really worked up. Oh my goodness, this little detail is different in this gospel to what it is in this. It must all just be lies and not be true. No, they talked to different people. They drew on different sources. They weren't even concerned with putting it in strict chronological order for you. Because their objective is, we want you to know and understand who Jesus is. So we're going to pick out for you different events from the life of Jesus so that you can know and understand who he is. Now, there's a lot of similarity between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and that's why we looked at them together last week. But John, who we're looking at this week, well, he's a bit different. I don't mean in the kind of, he's a bit different kind of sense, but just he's got a different particular emphasis and focus But like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he's particularly concerned that we should know who Jesus really is. If you turn to John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, towards the end of John's gospel, he says this. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. So it's quite open about the fact. I haven't put down everything for you. But this is what he says. He says in verse 31, But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. These things are written. The reason I've put this gospel account together is that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. In the next chapter, John chapter 21, just at the very end, verse 24 and verse 25, it says this. John, um, who we believe is the name of the disciple who wrote it, he identifies himself as the disciple who Jesus loves. Um, which is great, isn't it? John had a secure identity. I am the disciple who Jesus loved. And we think it was John. And he says, this is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. And if every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. What a wonderful statement. Jesus did so much. But I'm really concerned in putting this together that you would know that he really is the Messiah. That you would know that he really is the Son of God. Because John knows if you can know who Jesus is, if you can meet him and encounter him, if you can encounter Jesus for who he truly is, then you will have life in his name. As John takes us through the the stories, the encounters, the the signs and the sayings of Jesus, the ones that he's particularly selected, as he takes us through, he shows us how people at that time either came to faith in him or became increasingly angry and annoyed and rejected him. 
And Peter, the apostle, will later go on to explain in one of his letters that Jesus is actually, he's like a, he's a stone. He either becomes the stumbling stone over which you take offense, you trip up, and you reject him, or he becomes the capstone or the cornerstone of your life that defines everything else. He identifies that what we think about Jesus, what we believe about Jesus, really is the most important thing about us. Who is Jesus? For Matthew, Mark, and Luke, much of their focus was on Jesus and his kingdom. The kind of kingdom, they, they, they proclaim him as the Messiah, the messianic king. And they do a great job helping us to understand the kind of kingdom, the kind of king that Jesus is, and the kind of kingdom that he rules over. And they presented us with this kind of upside down kind of kingdom, where instead of being mighty and powerful, you humble yourself and you serve. And, and really messed with everybody's heads. And that was part of the reason that they rejected him. Because they could not understand. How could our great king, our great deliverer, surely he should be in a palace. And he should be powerful. And he should wipe out his enemies. And yet he talked about turning the other cheek. And he talked about serving. If you want to be great, then you have to be the servant of all. And he totally turned upside down their notion of a kingdom. Well, John puts his emphasis on the fact that this messianic king sent from heaven is no less than the son of God, God himself. John wants you to be under no illusions whatsoever that Jesus is not just some great hero, not just some wonderful philosophical teacher who turns your understanding of kingdoms on its head. No, this amazing King Jesus is no less than God himself, God the Son. That you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Many of the Jews at that time, they'd come to believe that the Messiah that God would send to save and deliver them would save them from the oppression of the Roman Empire. They lived under occupation. In fact, in the time in between the end of the Old Testament and the start of the New Testament, successive empires had come and gone and God's people were downtrodden and had people ruling over them. They were looking for freedom and their understanding of this kingdom was to go back to what they perceived as the glory days of David's kingdom when they ruled over everyone around them instead of having people ruling over them and so this had kind of come in their mind and they're looking for some great heroic political leader that will come and deliver them. They have no idea of just how much they've missed the mark. The religious leaders in particular, they weren't ready to face up to their own sinfulness and brokenness. Because in their minds, you know, they're the head and not the tail. They're, the, they're, they're the, the top of society and it's so unjust what has happened to them. And So there's nothing wrong with them in their thinking. They had no idea just how much they needed saving that there was a far greater deliverance that they needed than, than a deliverance from the Romans. But John wants us to understand that the messianic hero that God sends to deliver us is not just a mighty warrior or a clever political leader. So great is our predicament. So dire 
our need. And so great his love that he sends himself in the person of his own son. He could have sent a political leader. He could have sent a military warrior if that was what was needed. But God knew that our brokenness, our sinfulness, our state of rebellion and separation from God was so great that it demanded nothing less that he would send himself in the person of his son. It's a mystery. And it's not spelt out in kind of like line upon line scientific detail how to understand the Trinity. But John clearly confronts us with the Trinitarian God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and who comes to dwell in the midst of his people. John, more than any other gospel, confronts us with this reality that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and he loves us so much that he is determined to dwell in the midst of us. Turn with me, if you will, to John chapter 1, from verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Right from the outset, John makes it clear, Jesus, the Son of God, was with God in the beginning, that Jesus, the Son of God, is God himself, that Jesus is the Word of God, that Jesus is God's proclamation of who he is That Jesus comes from God and Jesus is God. He has life in himself. He is the light of the world. Jesus, um, recorded by John, repeatedly making this plain. I am the bread of life. I am the bread sent from heaven. If you eat of me, you will live. I am life. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection. The resurrection isn't just something that happens to me. I am resurrection life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the truth. I'm the word. I am God. Jesus says, if you've met me, then you've met God. 
If you've encountered me, then you've encountered God. I am God, come to you. I'm not God the distant and far off. I'm the God who came and saw your weakness and your vulnerability and your desperate need, which we have studied all the way through the Old Testament of the Bible. And in your brokenness, utterly lost, utterly without hope, I am God come to you because I want you so much. John chapter 5, verse 16. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. And in his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. See, the Jews, they understood that in claiming to be the son of God, Jesus was claiming to be equal with God. We sometimes miss that and people come up with all kinds of theories about what Jesus meant in claiming to be the son of God. But John makes it clear. In claiming to be the son of God, he is claiming to be God. I am the light of the world. He was with God. He is God. He was there at the beginning. By him and through him, all things were created. Jesus is God. Jesus is light and life. Because he is God. And the fact that Jesus is God is an essential part of our gospel. The fact that Jesus is God is an essential part of your gospel. Jesus is God. Now Jesus wants us to understand that our Messiah, our Savior, our King who comes to deliver us is no less than God himself. God the Son. Why? That you may have life. That you may have life. It's essential that you believe that Jesus is God because Jesus has the life of God in him and Jesus has come so that you may have the life of God in you. John 3.16, perhaps one of the best known verses of the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever should believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. So often we put the focus onto the perishing part. But I think the bit that's really exciting is the life part. The reason Jesus came was so that we might have life. That we might have the kind of life that God always intended us to have. Jesus comes to us as God himself to draw us into God himself. Jesus invites us into fellowship with the Trinity. He says, I want you in me, and I want me in you, just as I'm in the Father, and the Father is in me. Let's look at that together in John chapter 17. This is something so amazing that Jesus prays, that if it wasn't Jesus himself who said it, we'd be like, no, 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 that's not, that's not possible. That has to be heresy. That can't be right. 
But Jesus prayed this. So he didn't only say it, but he said it to God the Father. John 17 from verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone, talking about his disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So I love this because this is so undeniably about you if you've believed in the gospel. That all of them may be one father. Just as you are in me and I am in you. Now, many of us, we read this prayer and we think, oh, it's Jesus' prayer for unity for the church. And immediately we go to church unity. But that's a mistake. Because this does have implications for church unity, but that's not all that Jesus is speaking about here. So let's read it carefully. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world will believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity, and then will the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Isn't that incredible? Jesus says, I want to be in them and them in me in the same way that there is complete unity in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, just like you, Father, in me, and I'm in you, and, and it, when people see me, they've seen you. When people encounter my life, they encounter your life. And he says, actually, I'm praying for them that exactly the same thing will be going on in them. That I will be in them in the same way that you are in me. That when people meet them, they will meet me in the same way as when people meet me, they meet you. And he says, I want this to take place so that you will know, so that the world will know that you love them even in the same way that you love me. Jesus is saying, I'm drawing people into the same love relationship, the same union and fellowship of perfect love, the same kind of life, a life of love that exists in God himself. I am calling them into that life. So that the whole world might know that the Father loves us That the world might know, God, your father, wants your world to know that he loves you as much as he loves God the Son. It's incredible. God wants everyone in your workplace to know. God wants everyone in your family to know. God wants everyone on your street, in your neighborhood. He wants the whole world to know that he loves you as much as he loves Jesus, the Son of God. So that we might enter into and live in that perfect love relationship. And know what it truly is to live as we were always meant to live. To live in the love of God. Sometimes, as Christians, we kind of have this notion of this is us and this is God. Okay, A totally imperfect representation. Don't all get on to me afterwards. How could God be smaller than us? Okay, it's totally imperfect, but just bear with me. This is us, and this is God. And sometimes we have the notion that, you know, that there's like a little bit of God in us. There's like a compartment of God in us. But this is not what God is inviting us into at all. 
See, what God wants to do with you is he wants to do this. Now, where's God and where's you? Where's you and where's God? Is God in you or are you in God? Do you understand? He wants not just to be a little part of us or to be alongside us, but he wants to transform us because this is the kind of life. This is who we really are. This is who you were made to be, a life lived in union and fellowship with God. Not you on your own and God alongside, but in union with God. Jesus said that when we abide in him or remain in him, when we have fellowship with him, do you know that word fellowship, it doesn't just mean hanging out for a cup of tea or coffee after the meeting. It, it means sharing. So it's about sharing your life. So Jesus says when you share your life with him permanently, that you will bear much fruit. It's one of those famous passages. It's in John chapter 15. One of the things that John really emphasizes in helping us to understand who Jesus truly is, is just how often Jesus said that he had been sent from heaven by his father. Again and again, John records Jesus saying, I'm sent, the father who sent me. I've been sent from heaven. God sent himself in the person of his son that we might have life. But the amazing thing that John shows us in his gospel is that once all of this is accomplished through the death and resurrection of Jesus, so the death and resurrection of Jesus enables us to die to our old life and to enter into his new life. So that that verse that we quoted, whoever believes into, literally it says, whoever believes into me will not perish but will have eternal life. Well, in that passage, in that same context, Jesus says, look, to enter into the kingdom of heaven, you have to be born again. You have to be, another way of describing that is born from above. So so by putting our faith in what God has done in Jesus at the cross and through his resurrection, we enter into this new life. And this whole orange squash thing takes place. But let's just go back to Jesus' prayer in John 17, from verse 13 this time. Jesus prays this to his father. He says, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. I, I just find that incredible. See, once you get born again, you are not of this world any more than Jesus was of this world. I wish we could get our heads around that. Because we don't always believe that, do we? The Bible makes it so clear that what we actually believe is so, has so much power over us to transform the way we live and behave. So... The Bible, the Word of God, tells you that when you have become a Christian, when you've put your faith and your trust in Jesus, something so powerful happens. You are born again, and because you've now been born from above, that you are actually no more of this world than Jesus is of this world. And you say, but yeah, but I was born in this world. Well, yeah, so was Jesus. 
But he was born in this world and born of the Spirit. And you've been born in this world, but you are also born of the Spirit. So you are no more of this world than Jesus was of this world because you have a heavenly origin because you've been born from above. Incredible, incredible statement. So he goes on to pray this. He says in verse 15, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They're not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. As you sent me into the world, so I am sending them into the world. After his death and resurrection, uh, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, Matthew presented us with the Great Commission. Similarly, Luke recalls um, Jesus saying that his disciples will be his witnesses and that they should wait for the Holy Spirit to come and clothe them with power from on high. Well, John once again describes this for us in terms of being sent in the same way that Jesus was sent. In John chapter 20, verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after he'd said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they're not forgiven. This is absolutely incredible. This is the gospel that we believe. That actually God continues to send himself into our world. That he has sent himself in the person of his son. That Jesus is no less than God himself. He is the light and the life of God. Then Jesus says to us, I am going to be so in you. I so want to join my life up with your life that people will not be able to tell where my life ends and your life begins. That's my purpose for you, that I will so unite myself with you, that I will so draw you into fellowship with myself, that we will become, we will become intermingled. We will become one. And people will see me when they see you, that my life will be in you. Now very often we think that God sends us into our world like this. He sends us into our world and he says, okay, you better take me along with you. And so along we go. I'm taking God into all the different situations that I face. I'm going into my workplace. Oh, I tripped up and I swore I'm on my own now. No, come back, God. I'll do my best to represent you. And along we go. And, you know, oh, I've become a bit distant from God, but then I meet someone who's sick. Oh, God, would you catch up? Come on, come on, come on. We need to, we need to do a healing together. And we've got this kind of notion that that's how God sends us into the world. That's not our gospel. That's not our gospel. Our gospel is this. God sends himself into our world. Now, God doesn't become any less, so forget that. (laughs) He's still full. He's not diminished in any way. But God is sending himself It's not sending you separate from him and saying, can I piggyback along with you? He's sending himself into your family. 
So God is continuing to reach out to your neighbors, to your friends, to your work colleagues, in your community, in your school, in your college. God is continuing to presence himself. But he's committed himself that this is how he's going to do it. So our gospel is that you all get to be orange squash. Our gospel is that you get to carry the presence of God. That you get to be part of light and life flooding our world. And offering hope to people all around us. Because you are the evidence that God still loves the world so much. That he would send his one and only son. You are the living, breathing, walking evidence that God still loves this world. That God has not given up on this world. And so he will continue to pour himself out in your life every day. He will continue to draw you deeper and deeper into his love if you will allow him every single day. If you will connect with him, if you will fellowship with him, if you will open your life and share your life with him. He wants to pour out more and more of himself in your world through you. It's an amazing, amazing gospel that we who were enemies and far off from God, doing our own thing, going in the opposite direction, could actually be so transformed by God's love and power that having been in opposition, we would actually become the very agents of God, his very presence in our world. Oh God, that you would have such grace And such mercy towards me. That while I was still a sinner, still against you, you gave your life for me. And you didn't just send another, but you sent yourself. You came in the very person of your son. And you reached out your arms towards me. And you drew me into relationship with yourself. How can I not go? How can I not go? How can I not offer up my life? And say, Jesus, pour out all of yourself into me. So let's just think in this last moment about tomorrow morning or afternoon or whenever you're next in your family or your workplace or the supermarket or on the bus or wherever it is. Think about that moment for a moment. Just close your eyes. Jesus, this is an incredible gospel. And we're amazed again by what you have made possible. And we dare to believe that you are pouring yourself out in us, in our lives. And so we offer you our Monday morning and our Monday afternoon and our Tuesday evening. And we offer you the boring moments and the exciting moments, and the frustrating and difficult, we offer you every moment of our lives. And we say, come and flood us with your light and life. That we might be the light and life of God himself in Jesus Christ, in the midst of our world, in the midst of our dark places, in the midst of our struggles, as well as our successes. Come and be everything that you are, King Jesus Son of God, God Almighty, 
come and be all that you are in us, that people might see the love you have for us all. In Jesus' name, amen.